Hi, and welcome to the Two Lawyers Walking to the Bar podcast. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And after a somewhat lengthy vacation, we're back at it. And we're very, very lucky to have Steve Cohn with us today. Steve is a partner at Pollock Cohn, which specializes in whistleblower and other complex commercial litigation. Steve, great to have you. Well, thanks for having me. And Steve, why don't you tell us what your drink of choice was for today's podcast? I'm an old guy. I wanted Sauvignon Blanc. And it, you, you chose well, thanks, Lee. I did not choose. Cooper, Cooper chose. Well done, Cooper. I, I walked into the liquor store and I said, give me the second cheapest. Cheap. That's, the, that's the measure. Never the cheapest. That's right. The second, second cheapest, cheapest is I wanted the right you to measure. think we were classy. So you had so. the same teacher I did. <laughs> I've heard that's a very amateur move. The second cheapest bottle of wine is typically the worst bottle of wine in the restaurant or the store. Then he got lucky. <laughs> I think it's fine. I like it. I think it's good. All right. So, Steve, let's jump right in. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about where you grew up, where you're from, a um, little bit about your childhood. Well, I was born in New York City, but I grew up on Long Island, just over the city line. And that doesn't count as a city kid. My kids grew up in Chelsea. And I guess the measure is they knew the subway system. They got mugged early. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, very, very different upbringing. So I, I was, you know, 50s and 60s on Long Island, which is like the wonder years. And it was terrific. It was quite literally the wonder years. Right? It really was. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, was, I was the 80s and 90s on Long Island, which was not quite the Wonder Years. More like, I guess, Full House, but on the East Coast. A little, a little yeah. more vanilla. You know, we, we and at least, you know, we just sold my mother's house, and she had been there for 60 years. And the buyers were a young couple. And I asked them, different ethnicity for me, you know, different background, different era. I said, why did you choose this town? What town is it? Lindbrook. Lindbrook. Okay. I said, for the schools. And it was the exact same reason that my parents chose that town 60 years ago. What did your parents do? My father worked in a factory in the garment district, and my mother was a housewife. And But she, when my father died when I was very young, my mother went to work in the garment district selling mm. buttons wholesale, and she worked until she was 92 years old. Wow. And she took the Long Island Railroad in from Lindbrook to the garment district literally until the day she died. Wow. That's the way she wanted to go. Was being a lawyer ever on your radar when you were a child? Never as a child. I, When I was graduating college, I did what lots of people did. Oh, what am I going to do now? And I applied to law school, and I got into law school, hmm. and then didn't go to law school for 40 years. Hmm. So what was your – I know you started off in the, in the Naval Academy. I went to the Naval Academy for three years. They threw me out. And then when they figured out they really shouldn't have thrown me out because I sued them, uh, they pay, I won – and they you paid gotta, my you way. You got to slow down and tell all us this right, whole story. All right. <laughs> so I went to the Naval Academy in 1969. I have I no was... questions about that story whatsoever. By the way, <laughs> I, in, in, Very your, in, your, in the story. bio you sent over, you alluded to this, but and there were even in the in the bio you uh, you you left some spoil or you you had some cliffhangers there. He's a storyteller, so as we get through his story, we'll understand why he... Unless I make it up as, you know, making it up as I go along. Yeah. So I did. I went to... I was interested in naval architecture, and this is a member of the, hmm. the, the throes of Vietnam. I wanted to design ships, and there were only five colleges in the United States that offered naval architecture as a major, and I got into them. And my dad died the day that I was accepted at the Naval Academy. But he knew about it because the congressman who had appointed me called the house. He'd been sick. And the congressman called the house, told my parents that I'd been accepted at the Naval Academy. And my father died the next day. And 
he never said to me, I really want you to go to the Naval Academy. He had served in the Navy in World War II, but I knew he did. Mm -hmm. And the congressman who appointed me was a guy named Allard Lowenstein, who was a very famous, liberal, influential guy who served exactly one term. And he came to the house as we were sitting, shivered to pay his respects, and he told me a story. He took me out for a walk. And here's a U.S. congressman who I had met a couple times because I went through the process of getting the nomination. He said, look, before Bobby Kennedy died, he said, and he was one of Bobby Kennedy's closest friends, and now it's 1969. He said, before Bobby Kennedy was killed, he said to me, Al, if I ever become president, what spot in the cabinet do you want? Let me guess. You want to be secretary of HEW. That was, HEW was a cabinet before right. uh, education and health and human services. And Lowenstein said, no. So, oh, no, you want to be Secretary of Labor, right, Lowenstein? And Al Lowenstein, the great labor lawyer, said, nope. And Bobby Kennedy said, cut the crap, Lowenstein. You don't really want to be Secretary of the Army, do you? And Lowenstein said, yeah, that's where the power is, and that's where I can have the most influence. And here he is telling a 17-year-old kid whose father just died, if you can put up with the hazing, it's worth doing. You can always leave, but it's an experience you'll always value. And he was right. And so I spent three years at the Naval Academy. I achieved a pretty high student rank. And I got pulled out of bed and kicked out one night. And I was accused of cutting class, which was the only thing I wasn't guilty of. <laughs> I had had, you know, you weren't allowed to have a car. I had a car. I had been known, I had drank in Bancroft Hall, the dormitory. I had actually tried that dangerous drug marijuana. And best of all, I had a fake mustache because I figured out that if somebody saw me driving in my illegal car, <laughs> midshipmen weren't allowed to have mustaches or beards. They would do a double take and I'd be, the light would change by then and I'd be gone. And I got away with it for three years. And but I pissed people off in the process. And it, I didn't find out why I was actually kicked out for another 10 years, but I did get kicked out. I was ordered to Vietnam and instead- There was no due process to tell you why you were kicked out? It was exactly what they didn't out? do, and which is why I won the case. So they literally pulled me out of bed, ordered me to Vietnam, and they didn't do their homework because cutting class was the one thing I was not guilty of. And we bring this federal suit uh, in Baltimore, and the judge takes one look at the complaint and says, you're going to settle this. And the choice that I had in settling it was I could go back to the academy in good standing or I could get out. And if I chose to get out, then my education would be paid for by the Navy. And that's what I chose. What was your thought process during this this whole period fear. of time? Fear. Yeah. A lot of fear. Yeah. Because they sent the FBI to my mother's house. They were looking for me. But I knew that I wasn't guilty of the one thing they accused me of. Right. But what I didn't know, and I found this out later, that I was at a in a position as a student where I was recommending reforms of the Naval Academy hmm. to the top admiral at the academy. And it was the time of a guy, the head of the Navy at the time was a man named Admiral Bud, Elmo Bud Zumwalt. And Zumwalt reformed the Navy more than any other admiral in the history of the U.S. Navy. And he did things, he did this not through a top-down matter, but by communicating with the entire Navy at once through something called Zgrams, messages. His name was Zumwalt, and he put Z on his messages and sent it out. And he integrated the Navy for the first time, and he, he understood that there were race problems and opportunities for women and did away with what he referred to as Mickey Mouse. And the Navy was changing significantly. And I used to quote him and the Zgrams to the superintendent, the top admiral at the Naval Academy. What I didn't know until 10 years later 
was, and I met Admiral Zumwalt because he was running for the U.S. Senate, and I had just come off a presidential campaign, um, which I, you know, obviously I dropped. Oh, I just came off a presidential campaign. <laughs> um, I had worked, I was on Ronald Reagan's staff in 1980 and worked on that campaign and wrote a lot of the commercials that appeared. And I wrote about, I wrote a big article about it afterwards, and I got a call from this candidate for the U.S. Senate named Bud Zumwalt who is running as a Democrat in Virginia. So I go down to see him and I brief him about what we learned in the campaign. And at the end I said, Admiral, somebody must have told you about my very short, sordid naval career. And he said, yeah, but tell me the story. So I tell him the story and he says, wait a minute, let me understand this. You were a high ranking midshipman, yes sir. And you were quoting Zgrams about reforming the Naval Academy just as I was trying to reform the Navy, yes sir. And the superintendent was Jim Calvert, wasn't it? Yes sir. Uh, did you know we were classmates of the Naval Academy? Yes, sir. Do you know we hated each other? <laughs> no, sir. He said, Jim Calvert was senior to me, and I was chosen as chief of naval operations over him, and he never got over it. And your quoting Zgrams to Jim Calvert was throwing salt in the wound. That's why you got kicked out. Huh. I didn't find that out until 10 years after I was wow. thrown away, thrown out of the academy. What was the process of, so you got thrown out, and then how, how long after did you hire a lawyer and, and bring this lawsuit? I went back to the, uh, to the former congressman who had sent me, Al Lowenstein, and he came up with the strategy and helped me find a lawyer. The ACLU wouldn't take it, mm-hmm. but we found a lawyer in Washington who would, mm-hmm. whom I had to pay. And the whole process took about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. How did that experience color your like or, or dislike for the legal system? I was a little oblivious to it, but as I said, I, w- I was in hiding much of the time because lawyers said, don't get picked up by the FBI. It's pretty sound advice. Yeah, pretty good advice. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't uh, – in the negotiation, you know, there, there was a discussion and the, US, the assistant U.S. attorney turned to me at one moment. I mean, he's representing the government. He's representing the Navy. And he turned to me and said, don't worry. And that shocked me. And to this day, I think about, and I've, I've talked to him since. When I was being checked out by the, you know, the bar here, mm-hmm. you know, I admitted I had, you know, technically there's no record of my ever having been in trouble at the Naval Academy. That was part of the settlement. But I did admit it to the, um, you know, the character committee, just in case. And I went and found that attorney, uh, the U.S. attorney, who had become a partner in a big Washington wow. firm. And I said, I doubt you'll remember me. And he did. He remembered the case. Because it set a precedent about exactly what you mentioned, due process. Because there was no due process at the Naval Academy. Did you clarify to him that you had not skipped class? <laughs> they did in the papers. And in fact, that's a big reason why. We didn't admit all the other things I did for which I was guilty. <laughs> but you, know, but you just admitted it now. So. I did. Well, yeah. it's true. So when you get kicked out of the Naval Academy, you're planning to be in the Navy. All of a sudden, that is taken away from you. What do you do next? How I go your, to the one place that's the change? direct opposite of the Naval Academy. You can't imagine a more structured place than the Naval Academy or a more unstructured place than Brown. And I went to Brown for three years, two and a half years, three years, and loved it. Absolutely, it was the right place at the right time. And today, I value both institutions sure. more and in different ways than I did it going through it at the time. And about... So I'll I'll fast forward about, it's almost 20 years ago now, I wrote two articles that were published. Um, I wrote an article for the Naval Institute Proceedings, which is the oldest think tank and journal in the military. 
which is headquartered at the Naval Academy. Which you still write for, right? Which I write for. I was on the board of. I was on the board of uh, directors of the U.S. Naval Institute. You can plug your latest article at the end. Thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) I need all the readership I can get. Um, But that particular article was called What the Service Academies Can Learn from the Ivy League. And then I wrote the flip side article for the Brown Alumni Magazine called What the Ivies Can Learn from the Service Academies. And both articles generated so much hate mail because how, you know, what do we have in common? How can I learn anything, said people at each institution, right. about what they perceive to be the total opposite institution? And yet, each place can learn, and I hope did learn from, from the other. So I, I got, uh, was, I had no involvement with the Navy for 20 years from the time I graduated, from the time I left the Naval Academy for 20 years, and then I wrote these two articles, and I went back, and then I was invited onto the board of the Naval Institute, which was the biggest shock in the world, because I was one of the, if I, I wasn't the very first, I was one of the very first non-admirals or marine generals wow. invited onto the board. And I'm still involved. Amazing. What did you do directly after Brown? Politics. So I worked for the governor of Rhode Island for about a year. And then I came to New York. I thought about going to law school. Mm-hmm. And I actually went out to Berkeley. I got into the University of California, Berkeley, um, in both a public policy program and the law program. And the first semester was in public policy, not law. And I hated it so. I didn't even finish the first semester, and I came back east. Hmm. And the second job I had was in the state senate as the executive assistant, the top aide to a state senator up in Albany. What did you hate so much about Berkeley? Nobody would argue with me. Um, It was in the era where you couldn't get a newspaper a real newspaper until four o'clock in the afternoon. And everybody was so laid back <laughs> that it, it, you know, for a New Yorker who likes to argue, it, it, it was not the right environment. It was not the right environment or was it, it was the academic, you know, the, the policy degree, not the right degree for it you? It probably or? wasn't, a, it was not a case program. And I was mm-hmm. hoping for a case program because I, I had done a joint program at Brown and the Kennedy School at Harvard. As, as an undergraduate. And that was all case-based, and I loved it. But I didn't get into Harvard. It was the one place I didn't get into. So I thought, all right, you know, what, what's next? I had a free ride to Berkeley and went out there. And it, it just was a bad fit. I mean, my tennis game was good. My squash game was good. I bought an Alfa Romeo. I mean, it was, it was a pretty good life, but California was not for me. Interesting. Interesting. Um, tell us more about the work you did in politics. Well, I worked for, as I said, a governor, for the state senator, and I did both policy work and campaign work. And then I had this, and then I, when I realized after a couple of years in the state senate, it was all about selling that candidate. Mm-hmm. Yes, you were doing constituent work, and yes, you were doing policy work. It was all about getting her reelected, which was fine. But I decided at that point, if I'm gonna sell or market I'm going to learn how to do it right. And I went from there into the advertising business. Hmm. And I spent about five years in the advertising business, working, starting as a media planner and account executive, but not on the creative side. And my first boss, it was now 1980. um, So it wasn't five years. It was was a little bit less than five years. But then I spent a couple more years in the advertising business afterwards. Became the head of the... Reagan campaign's advertising agency. And he knew that I had both political experience sure. and advertising experience and said, you want to come along? And I was a Democrat. And I'm still a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But 
I was going to vote for Ronald Reagan because I thought Jimmy Carter was a pretty awful president uh, you know, through 1979, 1980. So I went to work in the campaign. I spent a year working on that. Um, then I worked on the transition. And, my, and I may have had an opportunity to go to Washington. And my then girlfriend, who I hope to be my wife, said, well, you can go, but I'm not. So you came up with It's Morning Again in America. No, that was in 1884. Oh. I came up with, with Can You Afford Four More Years? And it's pretty good too. It was okay, not as, but it wasn't as good as Morning in America. That was Hal Reiney, and it was brilliant. Yeah, that's, my, I mean, my that's, stuff was a, much more raw. I, I did a lot of the <laughs> negative stuff. Love to hear some of the negative. Oh, the, the best slogans. one. I, we created something called Democrats for Reagan, and we used footage of Teddy Kennedy when Teddy Kennedy was ch um, challenging Jimmy Carter in the Democratic primaries, and we used these clips. And I remember. Teddy Kennedy had this great stump speech where he said, I call this administration the surprise administration. Soviet troops march into Afghanistan and this administration is surprised. Soviet troops march into Cuba and this administration is surprised. <laughs> Full stop, freeze frame, a reminder from Democrats for Reagan. <laughs> and it, was, it was really good. And we, we did a flip-flop. I, I did the first flip-flop ad. Huh. The flip-flop ad showed a still picture of Jimmy Carter smiling. And it said, in 1976, Jimmy Carter promised to fight inflation. And the still image flipped, and it was a frowning Jimmy Carter. A real picture, not a, not a doctored yeah. one. Today, inflation is 18%. And the image flipped around again. In 1976, Jimmy Carter promised to fight unemployment. Image flips. Today, unemployment is 13%. And the tagline, can we afford four more years? So it's, it sounds like you're directly responsible for a lot of the negativity that surrounds <laughs> politics today. I'm going to go to hell just on that, yeah. But it was a great experience. And, and the scary part, and I was saying this to somebody earlier, from that one experience, you, you, you convince yourself you actually know something about politics. And I don't, you know. I'm handicapping this race like everybody else without sure. a clue. Did you see real parallels between advertising and, and campaign work? Oh, I, I, it's absolutely parallels. And I, I learned, you know, marketing. And it was great to go into advertising. I mean, I worked on the Hebrew National hot dog campaign. I worked on Pioneer Stereos. And the first, my very first account, I had to go to hair coloring school. And remember, <laughs> if, if, you, if you, listeners don't know this, but I'm bald. And I was bald at 25. And my first client was Clarol Hair Coloring. And they sent me to beautician school. And, uh, Are you also a beauty school dropout? or? or I never got through. Yeah, yeah I was <laughs> pretty good at that. It's interesting because a lot of our guests uh, have experiences working in politics, and I feel like a lot of them have said that the experience of working in politics informed their decision to ultimately become lawyers or really? go to law school. But it sounds like for you, you're— Absolutely not. Yeah. Not, not even close. <laughs> no, no. For me, it was just drinking. <laughs> and, well, that uh, sounds similar to a lot of lawyers' yeah. Yeah. second occupation. So, But, uh, no, I mean, I, I actually got involved in the law— in a very strange way, although I didn't go to law school the first time, I'm probably the only person you will ever meet who's been on four juries through verdict. I'm the only schmuck who can't get out of jury duty. Wow. Or was that purposeful? Did you want to be on the jury? It juries? was half purpose. You know, Lee, you're absolutely right. Because, yes, it is. A, I think it's a duty. I think everybody should do it. And it's really interesting. And I have written about three of the four cases. That's why you wanted to stay on. And I, I thought I was going to get off on the last case. The last case, I was actually finally thrown off a jury after I graduated from law school. And the judge said to me in voir dire, look, 
can you be the judge of the facts and let me be the judge of the law? I said, oh, yes, Your Honor. He said, I don't believe you. <laughs> and he threw me off. He, the judge, threw me off. Um, but in the previous time, I was, it was a federal case and it was a big terrorism case here in the Southern District. Hmm. And the judge was Jed Rakoff. And you go in and, and, you know, jury selection in the federal system is much different than in the state system where it can take a week to choose a jury, right. you know. And he asked the question, is there any reason you can't be fair? I said, well, Judge, you really don't want me because I'm a writer and I'm going to wind up writing about this. And Judge Rakoff said, it's not the question I asked you. I said, can you be fair? I said, yeah, I can be fair, but you really don't want me. You're on the jury. And I spent <laughs> three and a half weeks on this really big terrorism case. Um, and you're that. pumping your fist underneath the... Yes, I'm going to get to write about this. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, the, the, one of the cases I wrote about turned into a cover story for New York Magazine in 1991. And I actually went to work for the lawyer who was the hero of that case after I graduated. Wow. Tom Moore, the, you know, the, the great medical malpractice lawyer. Hmm. He was the lawyer on this case where I was a juror. The case lasted seven and a half weeks. The jury was out all of two hours. So I guess Came, he was good. You think? And I think the jury took that long because they wanted to have lunch. Um, <laughs> but it was so clear cut. And I wrote about that case and stayed in touch with Tom Moore for the 20 years. Since. So all three of these cases that you were on the jury for were- Four? What do you mean? You're four. shortchanging I'm sorry. me? I'm sorry. <laughs> all four of these cases were prior to going to law school. All four were prior to going to law school. These were all when you were working in the advertising? In, in advertising and publishing. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the other other jobs you had before you so went to I law school. So I was in advertising. And right. after the campaign, my girlfriend, who, now that woman is now and still is my wife. So it was a good decision. So I didn't get to do more political consulting, but I've had a very happy marriage for the last 35 years. And we, I, got, I went back into advertising. And I was in charge of a division of J. Walter Thompson, one of the big a agencies. And I, my job was getting new business. So I'd be out there pitching all these. And one of the accounts I wanted to win for J. Walter was part of Time, Inc. It was before Time Warner. It was when Time was known as Paradise Publishing. Time, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, People, you know, the most powerful publishing company probably in the world. And finally, one of the senior people said, look, we don't want J. Walter Thompson, but we'll take you. And I, I left the advertising business and I went into publishing. And I became head of marketing for a division of Time. And I went from the video group at Time and then I went to Time Magazine where I was you know, really, relatively senior guy at, at, at the magazine and loved every minute until I got fired. Um, it was just a great, great place to work. And there was a coup two levels above me and my guy lost and mm -hmm. everybody who worked for this publisher was out the door. Hmm. And... But I was in publishing at that point. Hmm. And, and then, then I, went, I went to Playboy for a couple of years, uh, which was bizarre, surreal. Yes, I did know Hef. Um, <laughs> and I, yes, I did go to the mansion. My, my what's, older, what's the best Hef story that you can tell on a podcast meant what, for What's the rating students? of this uh, podcast? Um, it's, it's PG, a strong so we, I'll, PG I'll give you a good example because yeah. I had dinner last night with the – head of an advertising agency who I had hired. So now we're talking about the, uh, what year was it? I don't know, mid-90s, I, I think, early 90s. Um, no, it was late, it was maybe the late 80s, early 90s. And I hired this ad agency. And this guy came up with this really, now at this point in time, 
it was still three and a half million circulation, largest men's magazine in the world, but it was on a pretty steep, steep trajectory down. Right. It was not its heyday, and it was having a lot of trouble getting certain classes of advertising, particularly cars. Here you have the largest men's magazine in the world, and they couldn't get a single page out of Detroit. Uh, there was a certain hypocrisy. Oh, we're not going to be with anything where there, you know, naked women appear. Um, and this guy who wins the account, his ad agency, his name is Todd Caesar, and he has an ad agency still to this day, um, came up with a campaign called the Two Reasons Campaign. And he got a whole bunch of celebrities to come on camera and say, I read Playboy for two reasons. And one reason is, and they would say, the cartoons. And then... Never talk about the sex reason. Mm-hmm. And the next person would say, I read it for the interviews. And never talk about the second reason. Everybody knew what the second reason right. was. And we present this to campaign, uh, campaign to Hefner. And he says, we don't need the endorsement to say it's okay, famous people to say it's okay to read Playboy. And he was wrong. And the magazine just kept going down from there. He was absolutely wrong. He was still living in 1964 not realizing the world was changing around him. In 1964, Hugh Hefner says he doesn't need the endorsement of celebrities to represent Playboy in 2005. Exactly, exactly. So so it was a great experience, and then I went from there to Scholastic, mm-hmm. and I spent about nine years working for the chairman of Scholastic and had a blast. I mean, children's publishing is fascinating, and it was not only children's publishing, but teacher publishing and selling books you know, through schools and to parents and through... Uh, it was just great. It was a great experience. How do you think your experience in the advertising and or publishing world has informed your life and career as an attorney? Well, it certainly helps when thinking, you know, I, I, we started this law firm about 18 months ago and the operative word there is started. It is a startup. Mm-hmm. And like all startups, everything takes three times longer than it should, costs three times as much, and you got to sell the firm. And so I bring my marketing hat. How are we going to sell this firm? What is our positioning? And Lee said, you know, we do whistleblower law. That is our positioning. And how do you communicate that? So there's a a big marketing function in in any business, and certainly it exists in the the law firm. So it does influence. Which is more challenging, trying to bring in clients in a law firm or bring in clients at an ad agency? You know, it's a great question. We've been really lucky in the law firm. We, we get calls, and part of it is outreach, but we get calls every day. And most of them don't, are not right for us. Um, and, you know, advertising is sexier. It really was. And, and new business pitches were always fun. Right. But, you know, that's, it was a long time ago. But it was fun. I still think that uh, legal pitches are probably not going to be sexy anytime soon, nor have they ever been. But it's better storytelling, Lee. You know, sure. we get calls from people, who, and again, focus on the whistleblowing aspect, who knows something wrong is going on in their organization, often a company. Right. And it's not about the money. Some of them know about the whistleblower rewards that many laws provide for. Many don't. And we've tried to analyze why someone becomes a whistleblower. And it's not for the money. It's a secondary factor always. It's because they want to do the right thing and they want to right a wrong. Mm-hmm. Which makes for some really interesting. Now, this, the, the hard part for me is that 
I can't tell you about these things, most of them, because they're under seal. Uh, you know, I went, when I was graduating from Brown, I was recruited for the CIA. And my, my academic advisor was a man named Lyman Kirkpatrick, who had risen to the number two spot in the CIA, and after he retired from the CIA, became a professor at Brown. And in those days, it was an old boy network that was largely Ivy League. And I was thrilled you know, to get the tap on the shoulder, what I considered. And I went to him and I said, thank you very much. There's only one problem. I can't keep a secret. And I, I literally asked why I did not go through the process. I can't keep my mouth shut. I can't keep a secret. <laughs> so um, this is hard because we have such incredibly good cases that will become good stories later on. But it could take three, four, five years. Right. Yeah. So just in the interest, I have a lot more questions sure. about your career, but I do want to speed things along and get to the legal part. So tell us how- Is that what we're supposed to talk about? <laughs> law? Okay. I, I wanted to go back and talk more about advertising and Hugh Hefner. And <laughs> I'm sure those it's are- got to be a treasure trove. Have a few more glasses of wine. And, That's right. And Do you remember the uh, Uncle Sam commercial for Hebrew National? I don't. Oh, this was great. So the challenge was Hebrew National is a kosher hot dog. How do you sell a kosher hot dog outside of New York City or Los Angeles? It's tough. And so the campaign, I was not the creative guy on this. I was just the account guy, came up with a character, Uncle Sam. And here's a guy in an Uncle Sam suit. And he's looking at a hot dog. And there's a voiceover. Uncle Sam doesn't say anything. And the voiceover says, the U.S. government says we can use beef pie products. We don't. The U.S. government says we can use fillers. We can't. The U.S. government says we can use all the other crap that goes into hot dogs. We can't. We're kosher. We answer to a higher authority. That's great. And that introduced kosher meat to much of America. Huh. Answering to a higher authority. U.S. government says it's okay, but God says, uh-uh. <laughs> okay, that's the last part of advertising. <laughs> all right. So tell us how at the age of 58 you end up in law school. Drinking. <laughs> and I know it's a true story. So I, I, was, I was at a party on the Upper East Side. It was just after Christmas in 2000, and I guess beginning of 2009. It was January of 2009. And I'm talking to a woman who I'm standing next to and my wife's at the other end of the room just rolling her eyes. What bullshit am I you know, trying to get across? And I was telling this woman about an article I had just written, about to be published, about that terrorism trial that I was a juror. And there were some really interesting twists in that case. And at the end of the, after telling the story, she said, that's really interesting. Are you a lawyer? I said, no, I just dress like one. She said, come on, don't be a wise ass. I said, forgive me. We've just met. I admit it. I am a wise ass, but I'll tell you the truth. Our youngest kid is going off to college. We're about to be empty nesters. If I didn't have to take the LSAT, I'd go to law school now. She said, really? At your age? I said, yeah. She said, fine, you're accepted. I said, excuse me? You're accepted. School starts on August 15th. Write a check and show up. I said, who are you? She said, I'm a dean at New York Law School. And she called my bluff in front of witnesses. <laughs> and literally that moment, I said, I'm going to do this. And I didn't have wow. to take the LSAT. You really screwed up New York yeah. Law School stats. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> fell um, and so I started age 58. I loved it. It Full made time me or were you going to night evening. class? Evening class. Which was, okay. There's another there's an interesting story. So I went in the evening because I was running a company. Right. I was CEO of an internet publishing company. Uh, I'd left Scholastic to start okay. uh, an internet company. And so I had a lot of flexibility and I had other people who actually did the work. And I would 
I had enough flexibility to also do some externships and some internships and all the rest. Uh, and I went at night. I taught for 25 years in MBA programs at mostly at Fordham and NYU at night. And I never realized what a jerk I was as an adjunct professor. Being an evening student is really hard. Sure. And I was totally insensitive to it until I became an evening student. And it wasn't for me because the stakes were different for me. My, my kids were out of my house, you know, they were gone and my wife was putting up with me. But my classmates who held down jobs were in relationships. Most of them didn't have kids, but were thinking about kids if they were married and, and doing law school. I think this is, you know, I'm, spending, I'm investing a lot of money and this is going to be my career. It's really hard. And I, well, two things. One, if I, if I had the opportunity to teach again, I, I'd actually be more sensitive to how hard it is to be an evening student. And the second, I would hire an evening student over a day student in a heartbeat. Hmm. It's, it's a real preference I have. It, it, it's interesting. It takes an incredible amount of self-discipline um, to do it right. I got a master's. <clears throat> Before I was a lawyer, I was a teacher. And I spent two years teaching in the Bronx, and then I was getting my master's in education at night. And you know. And All right, Cooper, brutal. stop bragging. No, no, you no, should I'm, brag. That's I'm not, real. I'm, Both I'm, things, I'm, to be I'm a teacher in the Bronx and, and getting master's. I'm definitely not bragging, but it was honestly, I mean, the classes weren't super challenging, mm -hmm. but it was just brutal. It was brutal to leave work at five o'clock exactly. and then be in class for two, three more hours, two yeah. nights a week. Yeah. And like leave, I, I would get home those nights at like 10, 30, 11, and then have to wake up the next morning for work. It was, I, I found it yeah. so You know, exhausting. George Bernard Shaw said that youth is wasted on the young. So is education. Totally. It was, it's way more fun to do it at an advanced age. But, and there's an advantage to doing it when you're this old. One big advantage is you know how the world works. The disadvantage is middle-aged memory loss, which really does exist. So it was, it was much easier for me in some ways right. and really tougher. What were your classmates like? Disbelieving. They were great. And um, it was funny. My, my study partner for four years graduated first in the class. Now, I didn't see that. I didn't have that insight. Mm -hmm. She was just really cute and sweet and smart. Mm -hmm. And I saw that right away. And she put up with me. And she said, I'll get you through this. <laughs> and she did. And it, sometimes it was really hard. Um, but I had a certain role, I, and I realized this early on in law school, and I could be of service to other people in the class. Hmm. I was the guy who raised my hand, not to show that I knew what was going on. I wasn't a gunner. I raised my hand often the first year to say, Professor, I don't understand. I don't get it. And I'd hear this collective sigh of relief from about a third of the class who under their breath were muttering, thank God the old guy admits he doesn't get it either. And I wasn't ashamed to admit that I didn't get it. And very often, only in one instance, did it, did it backfire. And I had a major fight with this professor. Uh, he was the only jerk I had in law school. And I ultimately went to the dean and said, you cannot make us take another semester with this guy. He was the only professor teaching this one required course to evening mm. students. And I said, he's a jerk. He's an, and he's a lousy teacher. And ultimately, they came to a compromise and we were able to take day. They didn't get rid of him because he was tenured, but we were able to take day classes, which had not been allowed before. Um, but my role was to say, I don't understand. And it would slow things down and professors, oh, okay. And would often explain it in a different way and better. So it was great. Um, I wish you were in some of my classes in school. <laughs> and I didn't understand a lot, so it, it was terrific. I mean, 20, 23-year-old uh, kids are terrified to yeah. 
one, admit that to their professor, but two, show weakness to the other students yeah. in the class where it's, you know, a very competitive environment. You don't want to show weakness or vulnerability in a law school classroom. Right. So one of the best things that happened to me, well, there was one downside. I said I was, I, I became 20 years younger by going to law school. I also got 20 pounds heavier because you'd sit there in class eating cookies during the evening class and then you might go out for a drink. I put on 20 pounds, which I still haven't taken off. Um, so it was hard. Um, Did you ever regret doing it or the minute not you started, you loved it? From the It was intellectually huh. fascinating. It was energizing. Um, it was challenging. And I, abs- I, I like law school a lot better than I like law sometimes. Uh, I really, really like. Now, th- there was one, one real downside. So I've written seven books. Three have been national bestsellers. I've written at you're this gonna, point. You give him shit for, for bragging right now? <laughs> I was just wait, wait, wait. Around. Here's the punchline, though. Cooper, you're so sensitive. So here's the punchline. And I've written 250 articles from everything from the New York Times to Time Magazine to the Wall Street Journal. Um, I got one C in law school, legal writing. Really? I still wow. can't do legal writing. Huh. I still it's, can't. It's so different than creative It's so different. It's very different. You, I mean, you know my background in college was screenwriting. And it was yeah. a, it was a real difficult transition for me, too, to yeah. go from writing creatively and thinking that you were a great writer, thinking that you knew what you were doing, maybe thinking that you had an advantage over the other people in the class in that regard, and then coming back to, down to earth and realizing you had to kind of relearn how to write to do well in law school right. and to really do well um, – to a certain extent with judges, I think. And, and Do you think writing. that's true, though? I'm, I'm, I'm actually you, curious about whether to, or not that's true. I think true. you have to combine the two. You have to combine the two. And we do it in the law firm. It's really interesting. I never write a first draft of a brief. Hmm. But I go over every single brief. Right. And I add things like periods. So that every sentence doesn't have to be, have you know, 27 clauses and subclauses and commas. My job is to tell the story. Right. Get rid of is the coming, fours. Right. It's... To make sure the words, you know, Henry Luce, who started Time Magazine and people, is that me that is beeping? I hope it's not. It's, okay. I think it's you, but it doesn't matter. Okay, it's all I good. apologize. <laughs> um, and he said, it's not what you put on the page that counts. It's what comes off the page into the reader's mind that really matters. And just because you think you're saying it doesn't mean they're hearing it. And Everybody learned that. They, they, we were taught that. In, I mean, Lucy had been dead 15 years when I worked at Time, mm-hmm. and yet I was taught that at mm-hmm. Time. And that's part of the lens that we bring to the things we write at the firm. Right. Is the story coming off the page? Is it sure. convincing? All the legal stuff will be there, but don't make it hard for the reader. I don't totally. care if the reader is a judge. or you know, Make sure that – I want the other side to know that this is a compelling story. Yeah. I yeah. think that's what we talk about a lot, making sure that whatever whatever the narrative is, even if it seems boring at first to kind of get past that superficial legal layer and really get to the heart of what's going on. Yeah. There, there's a personal story at the root of every dispute it's that good can point. be told. Yeah. I just feel like every lawyer goes to law school and feels like they have to operate in this little box and, and very constrained, very formal writing. And then all of us sort of like slowly are – as we are out of law school longer and longer, we're like testing the waters more and more, right. like seeing if we can get away with this and seeing if we can get away with that and like slowly pushing the boundaries. Well, I had, because I was doing lousy in legal writing from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And I said to the professor, professor, do I have to learn how to write like this to be a good lawyer or just to get through this right. course? 
and it was a great piece of just to get through this course. Mm-hmm. And because I have to grade on a certain rubric. Sure. And you, you're not going to do it. You're not doing it. So don't worry about it. You're a good writer, or I was a reasonably good writer. So, and then, which also means I didn't make law review because I had a C. And so I tried to write on to law review because I'm a competitive guy. And the advisor said, nope, this isn't law review material. Again, it wasn't because it wasn't law review. The first article I wrote after I graduated from law school was a law review article for the Penn State Law Review. And it reads nothing like a traditional law review article. It reads like an Atlantic Magazine piece, but it has 104 footnotes. But So I kept the style I have, sure. but I, can, I know how to footnote things now. And so I never made, I, but I made moot court. <laughs> that I was able to do. What was your thought process about your, while you were in law school, what were you thinking about your career after law school? I had absolutely school? no idea. Um, so I did lots of things. I know I, I didn't want to do transactions. I didn't want to do mm-hmm. contracts. I didn't want. So I, I did a lot of criminal work. I had this incredible full-time daytime externship at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District, and I had a boss who was really smart and who really got a, a kick out of the fact that I was twice his age, and he brought me to all the meetings, all the proffers, and he never introduced me. So people thought I was the old guy from from Maine Justice coming up from Washington <laughs> to sit in on the case. And he just allowed me to see everything. Mm-hmm. And Preet was the U.S. attorney at the time. I mean, he got he had a real kick out of the fact that I was his intern, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I did the same like thing. that Robert, the dis- Robert De Niro movie, right? The uh, intern? R- the intern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so after my first semester um, after law school, after finishing my first semester of law school, the Wall Street Journal did a piece about me. And they illustrated it with a photo of Rodney Dangerfield from the movie Back to School. Because uh-huh. it was, I, you know, yeah. hanging out with the young kids. Um, so I, I didn't know what I wanted. And I had an offer. I had an offer to go into publishing law. There was a professor at New York Law School whom I had known for 20 years from the publishing world. And he was the head of a major practice that did publishing. And he said, you know, I'm, uh, would you join this practice? And when I retire, it'll be yours. And I really, really thought about it. And then something really unusual happened. I got a call from Tom Moore, that lawyer who is, you know, Tom Moore has won 90 jury verdicts, over a million dollars. Wow. Over a million, so you can imagine how many he's won under and how many settlements he's had. An extraordinary trial lawyer. And and his wife, Judy Livingston, who's also a partner in the the same practice, has won 36 jury verdicts over a million dollars. So they are just extraordinarily good trial lawyers. And Tom was trying a case for the third time. Third time. And he said, I said, what do you mean third time? He said, well, it's a little embarrassing. We had an offer. It was a medical mal, a a brain damaged, excuse me, a brain damaged baby case. And just before we went to trial the first time, we had an offer on the table for $8 million. And the client had my advice, but my, he asked me what I thought, said Tom. Uh, you're never supposed to say, what do you really think? But the client turned it down, turned down $8 million, which is a lot of money. And then Tom lost at trial. Hmm. And the New York Post had a field day with that. And your arrogant lawyer, you know, loses, gives up $8 million. And like most lawyers, he said, I got robbed. And he appealed. And for the first time in the history of the second department, the appeals court reversed on the way to the evidence Hmm. and ordered a new trial. 
second trial, hung jury. So now he, I'm having dinner with him. He says, I'm trying this case out in Riverhead, Long Island for the third time. Why don't you come watch? And his thought was maybe I'll write about it because I did write a big right. piece about him years ago. And I said, well, let's do this a little bit differently. I'll do that. I'll drive out to Riverhead every day from the city and I'll sit in the gallery and I'll pretend that I'm a juror and I'll tell you at the end of the day what I'm understanding, what I'm hearing and what I'm not hearing, what I'm understanding and what I'm not understanding. And you tell me what's going on. And then I'll Couldn't give you raise your hand during the trial and say, right. I don't get this. But yeah, after- Tom, I don't understand. Will you, uh, judge, can you stop a second? <laughs> I want to know what's going on in this, in this trial. So he said, okay. And at the end of the day, we would chat. And I would send him a note and he'd send me some back. And by like the second week of the trial, he would stop. At every break, he'd come to me and say, did you understand that? Did you understand? Hmm. You, you know what I'm getting at here. And sometimes I didn't, sometimes I didn't. Well, this time after a four-week trial, the jury was a little bit nicer to him. They came back with a verdict in his favor, but it wasn't for $8 million. It was for 130. Wow. And so and I was just lucky. I was charm, I guess. And he says, so what do you think you want to do? Because I was waiting for the, the, the bar results, and I was thinking about going to this other firm, do publishing. And I said, I want to be you. He said, what? I said, I want to be you. I, I just want to be a trial lawyer like you. And he hired me. And I spent three years at Kramer Diloff, you know, learning from the best. Wow. So I was very, very lucky in, in that regard. And now I actually have a few medical malpractice cases. I, I, I want to move forward, but I do have one last question about your law school experience. Sure. Do you have, are there other people who are later in life who you know that you've inspired to go back and go to night school or I don't think I've ever heard? inspired anybody to do anything. I've <laughs> talked to people once they've made that crazy decision. Uh-huh. I encourage it. Uh-huh. I think, look, understanding the stakes are different, the challenges are different, but it was, you know, it's, it's a second chance or a new chance at a new career, a new world. And it's exciting and it's scary. Right. And it's expensive and it's worth it. Hmm. I, I, would, in a, I would do it again in a heartbeat. So we only have a few more minutes. Sure. I want you to tell us a little bit about your current firm and what you do and how you ended up starting it and, and the team. And Sure. So one of the cases I worked on when I was at Kramer Diloff, Tom Moore's firm, was what is known as a False Claims Act case. Someone had come to us with as, as a whistleblower. And I worked on this case. In fact, I, she, I, I heard about this even before I graduated from law school through a mutual friend. I'd never heard of whistleblower cases or the False Claims Act. And I worked on this case for five years. And... I was able to bring it with me because the, when I decided to leave Tom's firm and there was this young assistant attorney general in the New York AG's office named Adam Pollack. And Adam, the way False Claims Act cases work, you bring this on behalf of the government right. and the government gets the option of taking over the case or getting out of the case. And you can, if it's still worthwhile to do, you can do it on your own. And... You work So you work parallel, side by side, for a little while with the government while the government investigates. And the young assistant attorney general at the time was this guy named Adam Pollack. So we were working on this case together. That's how we met. And then Adam left the attorney general's office. I left Kramer Diloff and took this case with me. 
and it's the one thing we're not allowed to talk about. The <laughs> case is now settled, it's sealed, um, and it was sealed at, at, at right. the end. Um, and we're just not allowed to talk about that because he worked on it from the government's perspective. But we, when we were talking and we got together after he left the attorney general's office, we just came up with the idea of wanting to do more False Claims Act. Um, I was also involved, um, I had started with, with, against the, a, a defendant, a big health insurance company, Some another investigation I was doing um, even before I got to law school because I was wearing my journalist hat and people would talk to me about weird things. And we now have what's probably a billion dollar class action against the health insurance company in the next building from here, GHI and Emblem Health. And the firm that I took it to, because I couldn't do it, you know, class action, was Sussman Godfrey. So we are co-counsel with Sussman Godfrey in this major, major hmm. case about health insurance fraud. So that's that's a great. I love going after health insurance companies. I really think they're evil, and uh, um, we we have this terrible story. I don't know if I I probably mentioned this another time. Um, a man contacted me recently and said, um, "I read about your class action against GHI. Uh, my 48 year old wife had pain in the hip, and." She went to her doctor and the doctor did an x-ray and said, go get physical therapy for six weeks and take lots of Advil and take a heat compress and we'll see how you feel after six weeks. And she doesn't, she does it religiously. Comes back after six weeks and says, it still hurts. So doctor said, okay, let's get an MRI. And then called her insurance company, which was GHI. And GHI denied it. Said it's not medically necessary. You should have six weeks of physical therapy before you ask for an MRI. Uh, guys, you just paid for six weeks of physical therapy. So the doctor appeals. It takes 40 days to get approval to get an MRI. She gets it, and of course it shows a sarcoma. She's got cancer in the hip. She goes right to the hospital, and the doctors at Memorial Sloan Kettering say, had you come here 30 days earlier, we could have treated this with chemo. Instead, we have to amputate your leg your hip, and your pelvis. Oh, my God. So we are suing GHI on behalf of this poor family. Um, And so we we do a range of things, but, you know, things that make a difference. We're we're only on the plaintiff side. Hmm. We only do plaintiff's work. Interesting. Well, it's a fascinating career, honestly. I could could go on forever, but um, I'm going to let Lee finish off with a couple quick hit questions, and then we'll... there's one thing I want to get into before we do that, which is you said to ask about the least successful book that you ever wrote because it had to do with, I guess, either the movie or the book, The Verdict. So it, it does. So um, I'll ask you a, quiz, a question in turn. What do these movies have? I lost this bet. A friend of mine presented me these, this question, and I lost the sucker bet. What do these movies have in common? If you don't know the movie, I'll come up with a couple others. Okay. All About Eve, It Happened One Night, Terminator, and The Absent-Minded Professor. They all have one thing in common. I don't know, three of the four. <laughs> <laughs> Too young to know the. I'll come up with some others. Okay. Brokeback Mountain, okay. um, High Noon, and Guys and Dolls. And those three have same, the same thing in common with the first four. They're all Westerns. And, sorry, Guys and Dolls <laughs> is not a Western. I, I thought there was some. <laughs> Any idea, Lee? No. Okay. They all started as short stories. Short stories were a major source of inspiration and sure. film material. And the guy who I lost this bet to said, I'll make you one other bet. Uh, now I have, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do a second bet. 
He said, I bet you good writers are still writing short stories have nowhere to sell them because the magazines that published all of those short stories, except for Brokeback Mountain, which was published in The New Yorker, gone. Right. And so I didn't take that bet, but I did sell that concept of looking for short stories that had potential to be movies or TV shows over breakfast with a publisher. And the book became Next Stop Hollywood. And Next Stop Hollywood was a collection of 15 short stories from writers all over the world with one thing in common, real potential to be a TV or film. So being an outsider, I knew that I needed a big Hollywood agent to sell the stories to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I go out to see this big agent, or I'm about to, and he says, look, before you come out, send me your three favorite stories. And then we'll meet and we'll talk about whether you know we can represent you. And I send him three of the 15 stories, and I meet with him later on, and he says, look, Steve, you have to understand that short stories or scripts or anything, to be successful, they have to, you have to have a major star. And the star has to see this as a star vehicle. Mm-hmm. Am I going to make a lot of money? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to win an Academy Award? What is it about this particular script? And that story you sent me, which was called The Injunction, was about a lawyer on the downside of his career. He said, who wants to play a lawyer on the downside of his career who sues an NFL football team in a divorce proceeding. It sounds pretty weird, but it worked as a story and there was enough legitimate law in it to get beyond the suspension of disbelief. But he said, who wants to play a lawyer on the downside of his career? I looked at him, I said, well, Paul Newman did in The Verdict. And the so-called big agent, president of a big agency said, he did? I didn't know that. (laughs) So nobody knows, you know, you know, Bill Goldman, who just died, who wrote uh, all the president, won an Academy Award for all the president's men, he won an Academy Award for um, Butch Cassidy, had the famous line about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. And this proved it to me. But it was my least successful book. <laughs> so uh, we want to go through a quick lightning round with you. Sure. But some of these men have answered already. So best part about going to law school at age 58? Meeting people who became really good friends among the faculty. Hmm. Worst part? Middle-aged memory loss. I had to work really, really hard because things just wouldn't stick. Yeah. Favorite military movie? Um, a Few Good Men. I was going to say favorite courtroom military movie, but the then it would only be... No, I, I make the distinction. Okay. I'll, I'll get, can, can, can I have one more story, which is relative to all this? No. Oh, all right. Okay, you, can. <laughs> you can. Okay, so just after I graduated, I get seated at a luncheon. It was a bar association luncheon next to a judge from the Second Circuit. And I look up, it was, it was Deborah Livingston. And I look her up, you know, even I know how to use, you know, Google. Yeah. And I see that she teaches criminal procedure at Columbia. So I have something to talk about. And we sit down at lunch and say, Judge, I see you teach at Columbia. My criminal procedure professor uses the HBO series The Wire to teach criminal procedure. He would show a clip, stop and say, was it a legitimate stop, a legitimate questioning, a legitimate frisk, legitimate arrest? And you had to analyze it. Do you use The Wire? And she looked at me with contempt. And she said, absolutely not. I use Law and Order. <laughs> but, and then she qualified and said, but only episodes with Jerry Orbach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, favorite Law and Order episode? I watched them all so many times I can play any of the roles. The one they bought from me that they didn't produce. Is that true? Yeah. They bought one for me that they didn't produce, which was one of the trials where I was a juror. Yeah. Hmm. Best season of The Wire? The Port. 
the ports. Yeah, the one that's season, season two. two. Yeah, that's yeah. my favorite too. Yeah, I didn't understand the first three episodes of the Wire. I had to have subtitles on, you know. But then I got I got into the rhythm and understood a little better. Yeah. yeah. Um. Come on, you want see. me to ask you a question? Or a lightning round. <laughs> favorite book. Probably the Power Broker. It's either hmm. that or the best and the brightest. Greatest American whistleblower. Wow. Pass. I don't know. Okay. I want to think about some of my clients, but I can't name them. <laughs> well, I think that's it. Um, we we really we've stumped you. you. You have. <laughs> but it was that's a great place stumped. to start. <laughs> to stop. That's why I stopped. <laughs> Once I stumped Steve, yeah. I know it's time to end. So uh, I guess advice for um, for law students out there who are kind of deciding whether they want to go out into the job market or wait a little while, whether it's four years or, or 40 years. Before going to law school? Before going to law oh, school. Oh, I, I strongly suggest wait, work, learn a little about the world yeah. before you make that jump. And if you wait 40 years, you might not have to take the LSAT. That's right. Plus. All right, Steve. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks for thank having me. Thank you so much. It was fun. It's great. Thanks.